0: Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. I am so glad that you are here today. We are kicking off a new series called Greater Reward. Because here's my desire for you and for me, that on the other side of this season that we find ourselves in, I believe there can be a greater reward. I believe on the other side of this season, there can be a better life than what we're currently experiencing right now. But what I know is that we will not drift into that life. And that there is a gift in this season that if we're willing to embrace it, can set us up for that greater reward in the next season. And to start this series, I want to take you to about two miles beneath the ocean surface to a species and to a creature that we call the Venus flower basket. This is the remains of a Venus flower basket. It's an extraordinary creature that, quite honestly, I could spend the next ten minutes talking about. I could tell you the fact that this is one of the oldest living creatures on planet Earth. Um, they are there are colonies of these growing off the coast of North America that are nine thousand years old and still alive. I could tell you about the extraordinary intricacy of the structure of the sea sponge of the lattice work. And the way that scientists and researchers are currently actually patenting and, and kind of claiming the infrastructure that this sea sponge builds with um, for future building projects, because this is... More secure than current strust, uh, like trusses that we use. It's extraordinary. I could tell you about the fact that this thing, through very complex chemical reactions, is able to extract from the soil and seawater um, the chemical processes needed to construct a skeleton of glass. This is actual glass I'm holding in my hands. It's um, not fragile, though, because of its lattice work and the intricacies, this thing is incredibly strong and can withstand thousands of pounds of pressure from all sides. It's extraordinary. But the thing that I want to highlight about the Venus flower basket, the sea sponge, is an odd little quirk that you find when you happen to stumble across one of these really rare specimens. That oftentimes what researchers will discover when they look inside is the remains of crustaceans. You see As the basket begins to grow, little tiny crustaceans will crawl through the holes, especially at top. The holes are pretty large. And as the crustaceans crawl into the sea sponge and begin to kind of eat some of the remains and some of the things that filter through, over the process of its growing and in eating, it actually, the crustaceans will grow so big that they'll become trapped. They'll be so large that they actually can't break out of this glass structure. And and in some ways, as I was reading this really bizarre article around infrastructure of sea sponges, I saw in the crustaceans a picture of um, life for many of us today. The irony that the place of protection for these crustaceans eventually becomes their prison. They become trapped. And they lived the rest of their life in just a couple square inches, cubic inches. And this is the holding pattern for the rest of their life. And that what well, started off as a place of protection eventually became their prison. And if there's anything that could be said about this season emotionally, mentally, is that some of us can resonate with that. Some of us know what it's like. Some of us know that when you're in a holding pattern, it can actually be hard to hold on to hope, that you feel trapped and claustrophobic by COVID-19 and all the kind of cultural moments that we're having and trying to navigate them and relationally and the distance and the social isolation, all of that starts to press in on us. And in the midst of this holding pattern, it starts to really get hard to hold on to hope. And yet, if we're going to have a greater reward, if we're going to experience on the other side of this season, maybe a life that we've always longed to live, then I think there's some intentional steps. There's some processes and paths that you and I can walk through. And in some ways this morning, I will not be able in one single message to say everything that I want to say. This is not a message. This is more than a series. This is about you and I looking in the mirror and saying to our life, even even in the midst of the holding pattern, that I'm done with the holding pattern having a hold on me. For you to say that you are done with the holding pattern's hold on you. And to begin that journey, I want to take you to a passage that, quite honestly, after I became a Christian in the midst of college, this is one of those passages I struggled with. Not because of the difficultness of the teaching. There are some passages of the Bible that I struggle with because I don't want them to be true or um, I don't like the implications, but it's not an issue of me understanding it. It's not an issue of me wrapping my head around it. It's pretty clear. It's just I'm uncomfortable with it. This is one of those passages where I just couldn't wrap my head around it. It was. It was actually a really kind of a source of confusion and tension for me as I began to read the four biographical accounts of Jesus that we call the Gospels. That as I was working through it, I would stumble across one of these stories because there's a series of these moments scattered throughout the four Gospels. And I would read them and I would just say, this is so weird. And yet, as I was preparing for this series and this message, it's the weirdness of this passage that over time I've understood is actually far more relevant than I realize. And what I want to do today is kind of walk you through um, Luke, the writer of what we now call the book of Luke, Uh, this researcher, kind of diligent, disciplined Ken Burns of his day. Like I want to walk through his account of the early moments of Jesus' ministry, specifically this one moment that uh, was a huge spark. You could argue that in some ways, we're, if you're a Christian or even if you're listening in this morning and you're not even sure where you stand with Christianity, this moment that we're currently having is a direct descendant of the decisions that are made that day. That day in Luke 5 that we're told was one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. There's so many people, this is at the very beginning, Luke lays out his biographical accounts of the life and the ministry and the miracles of Jesus um, in um, more of a chronological order. Luke 4 is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and what we call Luke chapter 5 is the kind of the early days of Jesus' ministry, and Jesus has kind of gathered a huge following of a fan base, is a better way of saying it, at the time. People are interested. Uh, they're really engaged. This was a day and a time where people really enjoyed listening to public speakers. And Jesus is teaching around the lake, which was a pretty substantial lake. And uh, if you've never been to Israel, the best way to understand how big the Sea of Galilee is, is to take Washington, D.C. and fill it up with water. The, about the same square footage of Washington, D.C. filled up with water would give you the Sea of Galilee. It's a pretty large lake. It's the lowest freshwater lake on planet Earth. It's over 600 feet underneath sea level, and it's a lake that's filled with and brimming with life. And there's the fishing industry that's still active today, is kind of was at the center of the economic financial structure of its day back then. A lot of people lived around the lake. It was a source of sustenance, water, and food. And so Jesus is in kind of some crowded areas and huge crowds are showing up and they're pressing in on him around the rolling hillsides and he's kind of slowly backing up and he's kind of there at the edge of the water and it says that he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets the same nets by the way that are still used in this region today almost 2000 years later and it says that Jesus got into one of the boats and the one belonging specifically to a man named Simon And he asked them to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. Because that's what you did in the ancient world. Whereas I'm standing to teach you. In the ancient world, in this first century context, the teachers oftentimes would sit down. And that was the beginning of the moment where the lesson would begin. And the nice thing about being off on the shore is that Jesus has essentially created for him a natural sound system with the people wrapped around him as a natural amphitheater of the rolling hills around the Sea of Galilee, he has an ability to speak loud enough, and the the sound waves just carry along the water and to the crowds, and everyone can hear him. Now, in the midst of him speaking and teaching, Luke makes the point that it's the Word of God. You see, public orators, really good public orators, uh, were kind of a big deal back then. And and Luke wants to set Jesus apart. Jesus isn't just an extraordinary communicator. Luke's highlighting the fact that what he's communicating is distinctly different too. He's communicating the word of God. He's communicating the, a message that has come from heaven. And that at some point, whether it's an hour or hours, we don't know. What we do know is is that Jesus stops speaking to the crowds, <clears throat> and he turns around, and it says, when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in the deep water, and let down the nets for a catch. <clears throat> it's important to remember, Jesus was a rabbi, which was a, a traveling religious teacher. Um, his trade, his skills that he'd been trained in growing up was carpentry and masonry. So Jesus knew how to work with wood and stone. So the fact that Jesus turns and looks at Peter and tries to tell Peter, who's a professional fisherman, how to fish, is a little laughable. You can kind of appreciate the moment where Peter's like, "Yeah, okay, you you stick to the wood, man, I'm right?" And you kind of pick up on the subtlety of this when Simon answers, "Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything." You see, one of the things that it was really critical. Uh, kind of like the 101 of fishing in that day was that fish have eyeballs and fish can see and that they can see the really large nets the fishermen would throw in. And so this is why Peter says we've worked hard all night because being a fisherman in that day meant you were a third shift worker. You worked at night. Fishing was hard work because it would require you, um, the nets were so big it would take multiple men to cast them. Um, you would dive into the water, throw the net, corral the fish into the net, pull the net back in the boat, empty the net, and do it over all over again. The average nighttime fishing routine would, would kind of be about 12 casts of the net because you were constantly jumping in and out the water at nighttime, a little chill in the air, you oftentimes, as a fisherman, because bathing suits were not yet invented, oftentimes you were about as naked as you could be. The only light that you had was the moon, and so if you had, you know, your skimpies or if you were just kind of the way God made you, that's what you did. Jumped in, crowd fish, climbed back over the four-foot edge of the boat, kind of pulled them out, jumped back in. So, Peter's not joking when he says, we've worked hard all night. He's tired. He's exhausted. He's done with his work shift. He's over there working on his nets to make sure everything's hung up and complete and ready for the next night's work. And when he's getting ready to get off work, Jesus walks up and says, hey, can you take me out in the boat? He takes him out in the boat. And now Jesus is saying to him, hey, throw over the net, which is like the very opposite of how you catch a fish in Lake Gennesaret. And yet, Peter says, he uses the word master, which is a communication of respect. He's he's a fan of Jesus. He's heard what Jesus has said. He's seen what Jesus has done. He's been around Jesus before, and he's a fan. And he says, you know what? Because it's you, clearly not because you know what you're talking about, I'm gonna do it. And so he throws down his nets. And it says, when they had done so, it's switched over to plural because Peter or Simon is in the boat, most likely with Andrew, his brother, and it takes two of them to throw the net out. And it says, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Now, this is an incredible moment, one that can be easily missed by us because of the distance of not only 2,000 years in fishing culture, but also the physics of what does it take to actually sink a boat. Like, we understand that at some point, these things swim in the water, but how and what of these had to be caught in order to play out What happens here? Because I think this is really important to understand what Peter's experiencing to set us up for what you and I can experience. Now, Peter didn't catch this. What he actually catch most likely is this. This is a fish that if you were to travel to Israel today and you were to go go around the Lake of Gennesaret or Sea of Galilee, uh, you would actually be able to order this. It's on the menu. It's called St. Peter's Fish. It's a type of tilapia that's really common in the Sea of Galilee. The Jewish um, religious kind of structure and system uh, was really specific about the type of fish you could and could not eat. And while there are lots of fish in the Lake of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee, there's only a few types of fish that you could actually eat. This one, um, the males weigh about half a pound, the females weigh about a pound. And if you were a fisherman, a night that you would brag about, a uh, kind of a work day that you would be proud of, would give you about 100 to 200 pounds in a night. Because you would throw about 12 of them out to get to that 100 to 200 pounds. It meant that roughly you were pulling in a couple of dozen of these every single time. About 8 to 16 pounds per net cast was a really good catch. And Over the course of an evening, if you walked home, if you had kind of gathered and you had a couple of hundred fish, man, you would go home and tell the family, I had an amazing day. And so I wanted to know, like, how much of this did Peter pull in that day? So that I could understand what was playing out in the story. And because the Lake of Galilee is still there, uh, because the fish that were there 2,000 years ago are still there today, and because of physics, I was able to kind of roughly estimate what that moment would have been like for Peter. You see, when Peter went to grab hold of the net and pull back expecting to find nothing, what was probably in that net was equivalent to about 5,000 fish. 5,000, when a normal net pull would give you a couple of dozen, he's now looking at 5,000 fish, and he can't pull them in. This is why he signals to his buddies and his friends, he's like, I need help. Because pulling in 8 to 16 pounds, that's doable for one person. 3,500 pounds, which is about the number of weight that would have been in that net, that would have been enough fish to actually have caused both boats to to fundamentally start to sink into the water. That would have been overwhelming. So naturally, he calls his partners over, and the average fishing boat in that time was uh, essentially had a crew of five people. We know from Josephus that it could hold 15 average men going into battle. And so because of all those numbers, I was able to kind of arrive with... Uh, some clarity and some historical mathematical accuracy around this number. So seven men are trying to pull in 3,500 pounds. Now, that's still a really hard number to grasp because I can kind of read the numbers and say, man, that's a lot of fish, right? But I went and did a little bit more math and said, how much would that be if it covered this complete stage? And it would cover this stage kind of wall to wall. The entire stage would be covered with fish. 20 feet high. And in a case your brain can't wrap around it, maybe you've never even been in this room because you started watching us uh, during uh, the midst of pandemic and you haven't been able to step foot in this room before, or maybe you listen to the podcast and you've never seen this room physically. Um, if you've ever seen an 18-wheeler driving down the road or a tractor trailer, imagine that tractor trailer filled completely with fish two-thirds of the way up. That's an amazing amount of fish in one three-minute cast. I mean, that's quite the reward, isn't it? Peter's just had the most incredible work day of his life. I mean, fishermen, I don't know if you've ever spent time with fishermen. We have some in our family, and there's a, like, a... Com- a different level of swagger when they talk about the size fish or the catch that they had, right? I mean, there's this like, oh, yeah, look what I caught, Man, this was a 15-pounder, right? And, you know, you'll see them even take pictures with the fish that they kind of reel in. Like the fisherman swagger after you've had a really good catch is, I mean, you're you're like LeBron James just winning the championship. I mean, you are on top of the world. And Peter, there's not even a, a like a way to wrap our minds around the moment Peter just had. For the rest of his life, Peter has a story to tell. The rest of his life, when he walks into fisherman gatherings, he's kind of got his like, you know, what's up? Hey, what's up? What's up? They're like, that's Peter. That's the one who caught 3,500 pounds in one single catch. He's like... That's me, let's not get too overworked, right? Like, Peter has an amazing day. Roughly, that three-minute cast was about the equivalent of three months financials for Peter. One three-minute cast brought in three months of financials. I mean, what would you do if someone walked in today in your workplace, and they said to you, make this decision, and you made that decision, and your income In that one moment, you saw more in that one decision than three months of revenue, three months of sales, three months of product. Would you take a step back and be like, woo, drinks on me, everybody, right? Like, I mean, this is the best day of his life. And what does Peter do? What would you do? What Peter does is, when, Peter Simon, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. As they stood around and as their boats were in danger of sinking beneath the water, they were staring at this amazing amount of fish flapping around in the nets. The, the yelling and the pulling and the tugging and the, I mean, it's just mind boggling. And Peter falls to his knees and he says, Get away from me, Lord. I don't deserve to be in your presence. I'm a sinful man. You see, Peter recognizes that he's not standing in the presence of a better fisherman. He's standing in the presence of something or someone better. And everything about that, coupled with everything he heard, made him realize that this man in his boat, Peter wasn't even worthy to be in his presence. There's something greater than who he is in the midst of his presence. And this is something that maybe we have trouble wrapping our minds around. Because in our culture, we don't have a lot of moments where we bump up against someone who has authority and power that goes beyond what we're used to. If you've ever been in a moment, when I I was in college, uh, when I was graduating from college, the President of the United States, way back when, um, gave the commencement address. And because I went to a really large college, there was actually two different graduation days and two different commencement addresses, and I went to both. And the president of the United States walking into that room, leading up to that moment, changed the whole dynamic. I mean, walking into graduation, you were going through background checks and You were going through metal detectors, and there was a level of security that I'd never experienced before, and the entire city shut down in the moment that the plane landed. Roads, entire interstates closed off. All of a sudden, rivers that ran under the bridges on the interstate were teeming with boats with law enforcement. And for about 30 minutes, an entire city was stopped because of one individual. Landing at an airport. I don't know about you, but when I land at an airport, people aren't rushing to get out of my way and to clear the way for me. And that's probably the closest equivalent of us as an American ever experiencing someone or something that has a distinct level of power and authority. But it's not even about the president as the person. It's really about the president as a position and what it represents. And Peter's having something even greater than that. You see, a snowstorm will still ground the president's plane. This is a man who seems to be able to calm the storm, not be grounded by it. And Peter cries out, recognizing who he is, God, forgive me. I'm not worthy. Everything in my life compared to your life, I see the brokenness. I see the shortness. I see the way my life has missed its mark. And what does Jesus respond back? Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch people. So they pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything, and they followed him. Now, this is the moment that I struggled with, because I would read this story without any of the context, without any of the historical understanding, without any of the recognition of what kind of real miracle with fish that had played out. And I would say, man, what kind of person, like if someone walked up to you tomorrow at your workplace or Zoom bombed you in your work meeting and said, hey, I want you to leave your job and follow me, would you do it? Would your family be okay if you did that? It's weird. It's so weird. I'm like, Jesus come in, they're like, I am a robot. I must obey you, Jesus, right? Like I would read that and say, this this makes no sense. But there's a couple things you need to know. One is Peter has been a fan of Jesus for a while now. This isn't the first time Peter's meeting Jesus. You see, Simon, his brother Andrew, James, and John, this whole fishing production, this whole company, that's gathered that day on the lake. They've been dropping into Jesus's events for a little while now. In fact, they kind of had some desires in their life that I think were a little bit bigger than what they were doing. I think these four men had some dreams. They dreamed about being people who made a difference, they dreamed about people who were picked by the religious leaders to go through what was called an apprenticeship to become a rabbi. The reason I think that is because the first time they meet Jesus, they're following Jesus' cousin named John, and they're hanging out with John. They're learning from John. These are men who really genuinely are seeking, saying there must be something more to life. They, They had enough awareness to know that Just looking at life, wanting it to be different was not enough. And so they'd begin to follow John. And you have to realize, growing up, unlike our culture where when I was a little boy growing up, people would walk up and say, what do you want to do? And you're like, I want to be a cowboy or I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a firefighter or or in my case, you know, I want to be a, a space cowboy who fights fires, right? Like, I mean, you kind of have this idea growing up of what the ideal dream. Like Tom, Tom Cruise and, you know, like Top Gun, Maverick, you know, like, I mean, just like that's the dream of a little boy growing up, my age. And that day, it would have been to grow up to be a rabbi because they were the top. In the same way that boys today might want to grow up to be a LeBron James or, you know, whatever the hero in that kind of area they thought is the the top of the kind of the pyramid or the mountain. And for them, it was like, I want to be a rabbi. That's the top of the top. That's the biggest mountain to climb. And almost every boy was considered. And yet, pretty quickly, they began to sort kids out as they saw their intellectual um, kind of abilities, when they saw their tenacity when they saw what they could do and you went through a series of tests as you were growing up and if you would pass one the religious leaders would notice you and as you got closer to kind of manhood the expectation of being able to memorize the entire what we would call the old testament the ability to be able to to look at the scroll and to know where in the scroll what word was being said Eventually, at that point, the intellectual abilities, the the discipline to study, all of those things made this dream unapproachable for most people. And so the fact that Jesus comes to them and offers them an opportunity not to be a fan, but to be a follower, is a really big deal in this culture. And knowing what they know about Jesus, knowing what they've just seen about Jesus knowing that his entire life there's been voices that have told him he'll never be an apprentice to a rabbi. He'll never be that kind of individual in our society. Those dreams were laughed at and they were ridiculed and they were held down. And the voices in Peter's head meant that he went out every night and he fished because that's all he could do. Peter was going through the motions of life but he wasn't really moving forward. And then Jesus comes along, and he offers him this opportunity. Came across an interesting stat recently that said that four-year-olds laugh 300 times a day, and that the average 40-year-old, they laugh 300 times in about 80 days. That as we get older, the, the, the dreams that we had Not the firefighting space cowboy dreams, but the ones of like, this is the type of husband I'm going to be when I stood at the altar, or this is the type of father I'm going to be, or this is the type of wife I'm going to be, or this is the kind of career I'm going to have, or this is what our finances are going to look like. Like, whatever those dreams were, we go through enough of them not becoming reality, and we start to experience the other side of a dream that never becomes a reality called regret that we just kind of settle into this place of safeness. We kind of go through the motions. We let what others say to us, we let what others have said about us dictate the decisions we make. And we live in some ways not too undifferent than the crustaceans who spend the rest of their life trapped inside of the Venus flower basket. And I think what this season has offered for you and for me is a lot less distractions. Let's be real. Uh, At this point, you've probably watched almost everything Netflix has to offer. And outside of maybe something new rolling out, there's not a lot to see. I, I realized that we were in a pretty desperate place as a society when Tiger King was the biggest thing. You see, life has a way of giving you a pretty steady stream of distractions from the things that we really need to be paying attention to. See, I think that so much of the unrest, so much of the dissatisfaction, the frustration that many of us have felt through the pandemic isn't because of the pandemic. It's not because we're trapped in a prison called a pandemic. It's because we're trapped in the worst prison there perhaps is to be trapped in. Do you know that one of the harshest things we do in our culture short of killing someone for a crime is called solitary confinement? Now, it's not just that you're cut off from others, which is incredibly harsh. I think the other part of that that makes it so hard is that you're trapped in the prison with the one person that it's the hardest to be trapped with, which is you. The voices in your head, the regrets, the fears, the anxiety, the questions. That moment right before you fall asleep when you can't fall asleep because all you can do is think. All you can do is worry. And I think for many of us, we really can't emotionally resonate with the crustacean that gets trapped in the Venus flower basket. We're stuck. We're what we thought was going to be a place of protection has now become our prison. And what Peter realizes that day, Peter walks away from the greatest financial payout of his entire life. Peter leaves his best moment at work. He finally has everything. He finally has it all. It's like you showing up tomorrow and realizing everything you ever wanted at work has just been handed to you. And Jesus, and in the invitation to a man that has everything, Peter has the realization that nothing with Jesus is greater than everything without him. That he would rather have nothing with Jesus than everything without him. I think Peter would have resonated with the song our team sang right before the message, right? Caught up in your presence, I just want to sit here at your feet. Right. More than anything I ever need, I just want you. I think he would have been able to sing that song with a passion. He would have been able to say, like, I'm sorry for just going through the motions. I'm sorry. Right? Like, did I just sing another song? Peter had gone through the motions for far too long. He had been a fan of Jesus. But Jesus that day said, stop being my fan and start being my follower because nothing with me is better than everything without me how many mountains do you have to climb how many things do you have to get how many promotions do you have to have how big of a paycheck do you have to get how many times do you have to move the goalpost before you realize that peter and how many times Do you have to do that before you realize it too? That the greater reward is him. And that that moment that he steps into, Peter makes a decision that we are all direct descendants of today. He chooses to stop being a fan and to begin to be a follower. And I think the beauty of this season of life and this moment where we're all stuck and trapped is that Jesus is still walking up to people like Peter who are living, stuck in a place like this, saying, I'm willing to break it if you're willing to walk out of it. And that for maybe one of the best things that could ever happen in this season is you stop going through the motions and you start to make movement forward. And I don't mean like in kind of reimagining your life or dreaming again that you go and leave your job and move to like Antarctica to open up a surf shop. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you use this moment where God is standing in front of us ready to break this prison that started off as our protection. And you're willing to step back and to see this season as a cocoon, that on the other side there can be a greater reward to maybe look at your marriage and to reimagine what it could be on the other side. That maybe if we're willing to see this pandemic as a turning point, that maybe the relationship we have with our kids can look different. Maybe the relationship with our finances and budgets and goals can look different. That maybe your faith can look different. That if we're willing to say, I'm done with this. I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to dream again for my life. I want to reimagine that maybe you would discover, like Simon Peter did that day, that there's more inside of you. That there's more for you. And as we wrap up today, I want to leave you with three questions. This is just really meant to kind of make you wonder. Because the pandemic has kind of warped time for me. And I imagine it has for you. But when is the last time you laughed hard? Now, exclude last Sunday when I made all my naked mole rat jokes. Clearly, that was the last time for some of you. But I mean to really ask the question, When's the last time you were so overwhelmed with joy? You just laughed. When's the last time you prayed something bold? Ask God to step in and do something amazing. And then the second question is, are your dreams on a path to become a reality or a regret? That's a question that I think is worth leaning into. Dreams don't happen overnight, though they happen every single night. The real dreams, the ones that you and I were created to experience, they're a lot longer of a time frame. And if you were thinking about your dreams as a pathway, are you headed towards reality or are you headed towards regret? And then finally, this essential question, because Peter got out of the boat with three other people and followed Jesus. He says, do you have a who supporting you? And if you don't, then make today the day you grab hold of that hoop, Because the reality is, is that on the other side of this season, you and I don't have to live trapped anymore. But God is still stepping in to moments, like with Peter, to our moments today, to break the prisons and to help us to move forward toward a greater reward.